0: Uh, raise your hand. Prabir Babu has already raised his hand. Prabir did you want to say something when we start? Yes, Maharaj. I have a question regarding last class. Um, so the, the the lecture talk, so my question is that, you. Yeah, I'm just quoting you actually, I, I've actually transcribed the lecture. So it says, you said that all beings in this universe are presented to you, the awareness in you, the awareness and has nothing but you, the awareness. It appears as different from you. None of these things appear as awareness. They appear as computer, books, people, uh, etc. Now, where are they appearing from? Is it, are they appearing because of my karma? Or, You're or a- how is it? <clears throat> you are asking oh, why they are appearing? And where are they coming from? Where is there's only one place. From that, uh, from that consciousness, from Brahman. There's no, no, nothing else. But why this set of things? Ah, is why? It... Um, so why this particular set of things? Why not that? Why in this way? Why not in that way? Then you have causality. Cause and effect. If you ask Vedanta or any of the Indian philosophies, they will say karma. If you want more detailed answer, I would personally always go to science. Why this is happening or that is happening? Uh, I think the different branches of science can give us good answers. If you have a deeper question of why at all anything is appearing, yes, that's I mean, the question. See, there are multiple questions. Where is everything appearing? In Brahman. Time, space, causation. So that is the stage on which this drama is taking place. What is that stage made of? There's nothing else but Brahman. Where is that stage? It's Brahman, nothing else. Brahman means existence. This is not even just a claim that, yes, everything is in Brahman. It's a logical fact. Brahman is existence. So if you ask, where is all, where are all these existing things appearing? They're appearing in existence. If you ask, where are all the uh, waves and bubbles and foam appearing? In water. They're made of water. Where else will they appear? Um, but if you're asking a further question of why this set of things, uh, why in this way, you know, uh, why did this happen? Why did that not happen? Then the general answer would be karma. And a more detailed answer, it's much more, then you're entering into the realm of science, you know, into the realm of physics, um, or if you go further up uh, in the scale, then you're entering into the level of chemistry or biology or physiology, or even um, uh, medicine and so on. So these are the, um, once you're in the realm of causality, Pick your uh, system of knowledge, it will give you some answer. Um, but there is a, the most complex question or most profound question is not where they are appearing or why this kind of appearance is there. Why is there at all an appearance? Because you have said that uh, the ultimate reality is existence consciousness bliss. Or if you just say pure being. But what we are seeing around, what we are experiencing ourselves and whatever we are experiencing now is not just pure being. It is um, existing things and activities, not even a static universe, a dynamic uh, activity going on, a tremendous, like a storm going on all around us and in the vastness of time and space. So why at all anything is appearing? Then we are back to that fundamental question of Maya, We have I have discussed this many times. Uh, one answer, let me give you one answer. What are the alternatives? There are only two alternatives. Either something will appear or nothing will appear. Pure being will remain as pure being. So something will appear or or something will not appear. These are the only two alternatives. And notice, both alternatives are fulfilled. When we have Srishti and Stiti, the projection of the universe and existence of the universe, there is appearance. And when we have Pralaya, the great cosmic dissolution, then there is no appearance. Uh, One Swami in Uttarakhand put it very nicely, Ramananda Saraswati, I still remember, he says that um, um, in in the cosmic dissolution, pralaya, when nothing exists, the entire universe has been absorbed back into Maya. No space-time, let alone planets and stars and worlds and people, nothing is there, not even space and time. Only God exists in his majesty with his power, Maya. That's it. Saguna Brahman, Ishvara exists. And that's that's like a timeless instant. There's no passage of time there also. Uh, at that time, God is searching for us. We are playing hide and seek. God is searching for us. Where did those fellows go? We are all, we are all hiding in Maya. We, we have no individual existence. Then he finds us out and he throws us, you know, creates the universe and projects us back into the universe and restarts the drama of the universe. A new universe is created and he hides himself. So, now we are in this universe. We are running around. Now God is hidden. We are running around searching for God. Where is God? So, there is this cosmic hide-and-seek going on. For billions of years, we search for God. And when the cosmic resolution is there, maha-pralaya. And God, God is it we searching for us. Of course, it's just a way of putting it. Uh, so, that is there are two alternatives. Either there is no appearance or there is some appearance and uh, Brahman is fulfilling both both alternatives. Look at your daily life. Either the world appears, there's the cosmic, or this world is appearing before you, and you are also there, that is one, or nothing appears, deep sleep. So, both are there in your life, exactly like that in this cosmos also, both are there, both alternatives. There is no third alternative. Now, in this appearance, if you ask a further question, why this kind of appearance? Why this way and why not that way? Then causality. Karma will come into play. That, one question it. is, you used awareness and consciousness both. Quite I generally because, use it. So what uh, is the difference between awareness and consciousness? No, distin- no distinction. I'm not using it in... You can make a distinction, but I'm not making a distinction. Um, I'm just using it in the sense of Brahman, Atman. Um, one distinction one can make is... The awareness which we have right now, you are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, enjoying, suffering, waking, dreaming, deep sleep. This is a kind of awareness. This is called reflected awareness, chidabhasana. This is not Atman or Brahman. So when the Buddhists say that the individual is made of the panchaskandha, five pillars or five aggregates, one of those aggregates is vijjana consciousness or awareness. And at moment to moment, it is perishing. And at the death of the body, that also goes away. Now, so where is this, if your Vedanta is talking about consciousness, then that consciousness is just momentary consciousness and also gone at the death of the body. So that is not Vedanta, what Vedanta is talking about. So that is your Chidabhasa and it is reflected in what is called Vritti the movements of the mind. That is momentary. Moment to moment, many thoughts and feelings are coming and going and consciousness is reflected there. In fact, that is the consciousness that is being studied in modern consciousness studies. That consciousness, reflected consciousness and the vrittis, they definitely have some correlation with the activities of the neurons. They have to have. They are also material. And uh, the neurons in the brain are material gross matter and subtle matter. They will interact. There's no doubt about it. Vedanta has no objection there. Sankhya has no objection there. So I'm using consciousness and awareness interchangeably. But you can make a distinction. are different ways, it depends on the translation. Some people get confused. When um, Nisargadatta Maharaj, he says, this is this consciousness you're talking about at the end of the, of the physical body. When the physical body dies, that's gone. Now, if you are following Vedanta, you think that Atman is pure consciousness, eternal, you will think, what is he saying? (laughs) That consciousness is gone. He means this consciousness which we have right now. When the body dies, as long as the mind is not reactivated anymore, it's just like being in deep sleep for a time being. Pure consciousness is always there. Atman, Brahman, so whatever. Because there is no direct word for pure consciousness in English. I use the words consciousness, awareness, interchangeably. Swami Vivekananda even used knowledge itself. At one time, he used awareness itself, intelligence itself. Though intelligence, we now use it in terms of buddhi as understanding, a particular function of the mind. At one time, that was the only way of referring to consciousness because this use of the term awareness or consciousness was not very prevalent 120, 150 years ago. Now it's much more prevalent. All right. Thank you, thank you, Maharaj. Thank you. Let us go ahead. Have I done the chant? No. Om um, Vasudeva Sutam Devam Kamsa Chanuram Ardhanam Devaki Paramanandam Krishnam Vande Chagat Guru I think last week we missed a class. Um, a new Vedanta Center run by Devotees in Connecticut was inaugurated. Very nice program was there. So I had gone for that. Before that, we did an important verse, very important verse, and beautiful verse, which states the whole of Advaita Vedanta. This was the 29th verse of the 6th chapter. 6th chapter, 29th verse. Sarvabhutasthamatmanam sarvabhutani chatmani Ikshate yoga yuktātmā saruvatra samadarshana. So all, the ātman in all beings, everywhere in this existence, you find that golden cord of consciousness running through our existence. Uh, or can we use the term presence everywhere? And sarva bhūtānich ātmani, all beings are also in the ātman. All beings are in the Atman, not in the sense that Atman is like a bowl and a bowl of fruit and you put all the pears and grapes and all of it in a bowl. Not in that. Not in that sense. It's not a container-contained relationship. More it's like like all the waves are in water. All the pottery is in the clay. Clay pottery is in the clay. All um, ornaments are in gold. It's a weird way of speaking, but it's true. Where do the uh, ornaments appear? In gold. Even more direct. As all the people you meet in your dreams and the places you go to and all of that is in your mind. It's basically your mind appearing in those ways. Similarly, when you say all beings are in the Atman, it's your Atman itself appearing as all those beings in the Atman. Space is also in the Atman. Time is also in the Atman. How can space and time, uh, such vast things, be in consciousness. It's true. What happens in your dream? All the places that you see, the vast open places, the big cities and the international travel, all of that is happening in your mind, literally in your mind. And the time, the time is passing, that's also in your mind. Actually, there's no space there. There's no time there. It's just the mind in itself. Similarly, that's a dream. That's a dream. But what Vedanta claims, something similar is happening here but not by the mind. It is uh, happening in the absolute, in Brahman, in pure being, in pure awareness. It's an important distinction to draw. I'll just touch upon it here and go ahead. There's no time to discuss that. What Vedanta is proposing is not subjective idealism. Subjective idealism is a philosophical position which states that just as everything you dream about in your dream state whatever you dream about, whoever you dream about, whatever happens in your dream was all in your mind and nothing but your mind. Nobody disagrees there. Just like that, everything that you see here is in your mind and nothing but your mind. Whose mind? Your mind. Your individual mind. You are creating this universe. Vedanta does not agree. And this is an old ancient battle between subjective idealism and realism. So, um, so there was a school of Buddhists called the Vigyanavadis or Chittamatra school, the mind-only school of Buddhists. And that's a powerful school of, uh, as part of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition even now and Mahayana Buddhist traditions, mind-only school. And they say the whole universe is in the mind. Um, so, a number of Hindu philosophers attacked this, the Nayayikas, the Purva Mimamsakas and Shankara finally. Um, the Nayayikas... And the Puruva Mimamsakas, they attacked this school. Understandable, because they are realists. It is Nyaya school and the Puruva mimamsa school of uh, Hinduism. They are realists. Realists in a sense, there is a world. Just like in the common sense, you feel that there is there are people outside. There is a world outside. These people also say that. The Nayaikas and Purva Mimamsakas. There is a world outside. There are real things happening, real actions, and all of that is very real. Bodies, real, and activities in the world, it's not in your mind. It's not like a dream at all. So they attack the Buddhists because they are realists and the Buddhists are subjective idealists. But what is interesting is Shankara attacks the Buddhists. You would think Shankara would be in sympathy because he also says everything is not in the mind, but in, in consciousness or in Atman. Just like Gita said, everything is in the Atman. Sarva, Bhutan, cha Atmani. But Shankara attacks, sharply attacks the Buddhist subjective idealists because he wants to distinguish his position from them. He says, this world which you are seeing here is not a creation of your mind. You, Sarva Priyananda, you are one individual. You have not created this world out there. You have not created, you have not ima- You are not imagining Manhattan. You are not imagining all these people present on Zoom here. No. They are there and you are experiencing them through your mind. But you and all of this, your mind and body and all of these minds and bodies, an entire material universe is appearing in one unlimited being, one unlimited existence consciousness, which is your real nature and also the real nature of everybody else. That's what um, Advaita Vedanta says. That's what Shankara is trying to prove. So he's not trying to say that you are dreaming now uh, in your own mind. Professor Arandam Chakraborty has written a paper about this. He he calls it nicely, Idealist Refutations of Idealism. Why does Shankar attack the the subjective idealist, the Buddhist? After all, the Buddhist is saying something very similar. In Gaudapada, in Madhukya Karika, when we studied, we saw Gaudapada attacks the subjective idealist because of this very reason. Um, So, you have to make a distinction between what is called subjective idealism and absolutism. Subjective idealism, world is your dream absolutism is one absolute reality in which all beings and their minds and the world all appear and they interact with each other
1: even in the dream example not something when you are dreaming you are not aware you are dreaming
0: you think that there are people there i'm walking in a space outside things are happening now when you wake up you realize that all that you saw was nothing but you, the dreamer's mind. And even you who were there in that dream, walking around and talking with people, that was also imagined in the dreamer's mind. So the whole thing was imagined in the dreamer's mind. But you, the person in the dream, you were not dreaming up the dream world. Do you see what I mean? In the dream, you are also there as a character in your own dream. And that character in the dream is not dreaming up that world. Rather, that character and the dream world are both being dreamt up by you, the dreamer, who's sleeping. Similarly, here in this waking world, there's a background existence consciousness place. There's a background absolute. What Meister Eckhart calls the ground of my soul and the ground of God are one and the same ground. The primal ground. In that, all of this is appearing. But that one is also you. That's the beauty of Advaita Vedanta. That's your real nature. So that was said in the 29th verse. Now we will go to the 20, 30th verse. The same theme continues. Yomam sarvatra, sarvam pasyati, he who sees me everywhere and sees everything in me. I never, uh, I'm never destroyed. I, I'm never lost to him, nor is he ever lost to me. So the same thing is continuing. The one who sees me, one who sees that absolute reality everywhere. And the one um, and who sees everything in that absolute reality. So for that person, I am not lost, nor is he ever lost for me. That's a very beautiful verse. Uh, Shankaracharya says, when Krishna is saying, I am not lost to this person, Shankaracharya com- comments, parokshatam na gamishyami. I never become paroksha for that. Verse. Paroksha means uh, indirect. The reality is always directly available to the enlightened one. Indirect means something you have read about, something you believe in. That's indirect. Something you experienced in a mystic experience at one time. At one time I saw it. Now I don't see it anymore, but I have a
1: beautiful memory of it. That's still indirect. But notice, your experience of yourself, you, yourself,
0: that can never be indirect. Right now you're experiencing yourself, whatever way you understand yourself. And that experience is always direct. You never say, yeah, I experienced myself, but that was a long time ago. Nowadays, I don't experience myself. That's ridiculous. You never say, I experienced myself, but I have a beautiful memory of it nowadays. Or you don't say, yes, I know that I exist because I read about it. Some very great scientist gave a lecture that I exist. No, you never say such a thing. You, Your own existence is direct for you. Now, for the enlightened one, the existence of God, the absolute reality is direct like that because it is his or her own existence. Parokshatam Nagachati never becomes indirect. I never, God never, he says, I never become indirect. What happens is that absolute reality, remember, this is the chapter on meditation. So there is, you have already talked about the heights or the depths of the deepest possible meditation, Samadhi. Not only just Samadhi, but Nirvikalpa Samadhi, Asampragynata Samadhi, the highest, deepest samadhi spoken about in yoga. In that samadhi, word is not there. No experience of a material world. No experience of the body, obviously. No experience of the breath. Literally, the breath stops at that, at that time. No experience of the mind. There are no thoughts there. There are no memories there. There are no desires. No perceptions, obviously. No seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, anything.
1: No sense of ego also. That also fades away. There is only a vast light,
0: which is not an objective light, not a light like this. It's indistinguishable from darkness, if that makes any sense. One monk put it this way. He called it the midnight sun. Just this phrase, anybody who says, that the ultimate reality is like like a midnight sun. It's really midnight, completely dark, no moon, moonless, midnight. And yet the sun is shining with undimmed glory. How is that possible? Anybody who can say that is an enlightened person, knows what he or she is talking about. That, That is the experience of samadhi. Now, when that person comes out of samadhi, that person will see That same midnight sun, that same endless, unexpressed, unmanifest glory. Manifest glory, that which is experienced as an object. Unmanifest glory, absolutely real, but not experienced as an object. That which is the unmanifest glory is now manifest as this universe. And as the god of this universe. One consciousness appearing as millions of entities, billions of entities. Behind that is one consciousness. And the same consciousness appearing as you. You
1: means the enlightened one in this body-mind. Now you see how after that enlightenment at this stage, how bhakti is again possible.
0: I, the same divinity, now experiences that same divinity in this vastness. And obviously, it's a real divinity. You cannot but bow down in devotion. Your tears cannot cannot but come to your eyes. These mystics talk about every hair standing on its end. You are continuously experiencing God in every experience. Parokshatam Nagamishyami. Shankaracharya beautifully puts it. The Lord says, I never become indirect to this person. I am always directly revealed to this, this enlightened one. Then all this is a consequence of the last time we talked about seeing uh, Brahman in all beings and all beings in Brahman. The consequence of that is this. Then the next one. And he also says such a man of And The Lord says such a devotee never disappears for me because he and I, Shankaracharya says it is my, he is my Atma. God says you, the devotee, you are the very self, the, the soul of God. You, you are one with God forever. Body will die. Individuality will go away. Uh, but you are one with God. Then the next one, same theme is continuing. Sarvabhuta sthitam yo maam. Bhajate kattva Sarvatha vattaman opi. Sayogi mahibatate. Sarvabhuta sthitam yo maam. The one who sees me in all beings and worships me as the unity residing in all beings. It's not difficult to understand there is consciousness shining through all bodies and minds. That's not difficult to understand. But that one consciousness is a vast consciousness. It's one. It's a unity. And that is God. That is the absolute reality. The source of this universe. The existence of this universe. Continuously obvious. And you are that. Tattvamasi, even further than that. You are that. I just said a little while ago, the enlightened one sees that divinity appearing in a million, billion different ways as one consciousness behind the entire universe as God uh, and appearing as you with your body, mind. Or a deeper realization would be the enlightened one sees or you see you are appearing in a billion ways as this universe and also as you in, in one way as this the subject of this experience with this body-mind. What a tremendous experience. This one will, will this one ever be afraid of death? Nothing. Physical death is, I wonder if you will even notice the death of this body, one body. It's nothing to this person. You can flick up a little bit of dirt from your shirt. Like that, this enlightened one can flick up one body. It's it's nothing to this person. Now, this person, I, the Lord, am this one existence consciousness in all beings, in high and low, in human beings and animals and plants, everywhere I am this one divinity. And this person worships this divinity as a unity, as one. Not as many, many consciousnesses, but one. And beautiful point, whatever be the mode of life, you are always in God. Sarvatha vattamano In whatever way this enlightened one exists, whatever way this enlightened one is living, um, maybe a monk, maybe a householder, a man, a woman, a um, uh, transgender nowadays you would say, or old person, or young person, or could be a child, in whatever state, could be um, rich and powerful and famous uh, could be completely unknown could be you know the head of a great religious order and g- giving instruction and guidance to millions could be a completely unknown forgotten beggar uh, sitting you uh, know uh, on the side of a road or in a, in a cave in a mountain cave could be sick and dying yeah. you could sit in meditation and pass away in, in samadhi or be sick and dying in a in a a hospital bed in an ICU, sarvathā vaktamānophi, whatever the state of that individual body, whatever it is, that person is irrevocably, choicelessly,
1: always in God. No effort is necessary for that person. So this is moksha, freedom, already attained freedom. From
0: our perspective, our perspective means those who are watching this entire thing, those who are maybe interested in spiritual life, who want to see this person as an enlightened person, we say two things. Jivan Mukti Videha Mukti. Jivan Mukti means enlightened while living. In this very life itself, this person whom we saw as the spiritual master, we say he's an enlightened person. This is called Jivan Mukti, free while living. And you can see all the glory of enlightenment in that person. That's a person's behavior and teaching and and just the personality of that person. And then we also speak of, we speak of uh, Videha Mukti, the bodiless liberation. When we say, oh, our great enlightened master has passed, the body has died. Uh, So now what has happened to his enlightened master? He has attained bodiless liberation. If you ask the enlightened master, really, really, are you liberated while living? Are you liberated after the body dies? See, what? See, see, it's funny from that enlightened master's perspective. Uh, you know, one monk put it this way very nicely. See, see the scale of their thinking. He said, even Brahma jnana, the realization of Brahman, you're making it conditional, dependent, related to one miserable little body. Liberated in that body, bodiless liberation after the death of that body. Can't you stop thinking about that body? Here you are talking about that vastness from which universes appear and play around and disappear. Still concerned, obsessed about one body. Liberated in that body, bodiless liberation. So you see, that's the scale they're thinking of. When you think in that scale, it's completely unimportant. He says, it's completely unimportant how this body lives or goes. So I Vivekananda says, his famous song of the sannyasi. The song of the sannyasi, at the end of that, The last verse, he says, heed no more than how body, heed no more how body lives or goes. Its task is done. Let karma float it down.
1: Its task is done. It has set you free. You are now the infinite. Mm. The bird has flown. There's an Islamic
0: mystical song about, about, uh, you know, Sufis in... uh, Eastern Bengal, they, they sing about this. They say the bird of the spirit has, the spirit you in this body who was there has flown. Now the cage remains empty and broken. And so it's so beautiful, touching. It says that when the bird was there, the bird came from the infinite and was caged in this cage of flesh and bones. So the bird stayed in this cage. But what happened, you know, when the bird was staying, bird means the spirit, you. But the bird was imprisoned in this cage. It was sitting in this cage. The poor cage, which is matter, material cage. The cage fell in love with the bird. But now the cage is broken and the bird has flown into the heavens. And the cage misses the bird terribly. (laughs) The cage is crying out to the bird that you are hard-hearted. That you have no pity on me. Here I lie empty and broken and you fly in the heavens and in the light above. Uh, so, it, but it's a mystical way of speaking. It, Gage cannot say that. Don't, don't worry. Don't, don't think that the poor oh, the poor body, uh, I must go back to it. it. It's feeling sad without me. Don't think like that. Because the body ultimately is just name and form. It's nothing other than you yourself. As every body you see in the dream is nothing other than the dreamer's mind. Even this body is also nothing other than you, the unlimited consciousness. It's an appearance in you. But it's a, it's a very nice poetic way of putting it. Um Whatever the condition, this person, the particular body may be dying out of disease in an ICU, maybe even in in coma. We have seen it so many times. Amazing things happening. Amazing things need not happen. The person may still be enlightened. But sometimes amazing things happen. I know of this monk, Kalida Maharaj. Some some people may have seen. He was a disciple of the Holy Mother. Unfortunately, by the time we became uh, novices, he was very old. He was already in a coma. Um, and he passed as a disciple of the Holy Mother. And he established a beautiful ashram in Jamshedpur, very big ashram in, in the eastern part of India. Many schools, he did a tremendous amount of work. And apparently for those who have known him, senior monks, many of them didn't know him. He was a very, very loving person. Um, and uh, he occasionally had visions of the Holy, uh, Holy Mother, of Masharatha. So you would know that he had a vision when he would declare a feast and feed everybody all around. So that would be a nice occasion for him because he saw the Holy Mother, but everybody else because they would get a feast. Now, this is, I didn't see it myself, but it happened um, by the time I was already a novice, but unfortunately I didn't see it myself. He was in a comatose state, and there was this Durga Puja, the worship of the Divine Mother, which is performed annually. It's a big festival in Bengal. For five days, the worship of the Divine Mother Durga is performed, God as, as Mother. So all the monks, and we also used to do that. We used to offer lotus flowers at the feet of the image of Durga in those days. And uh, so this Swami, who was a disciple of the Holy Mother, and he was in coma and he was wheeled out in a a wheelchair. And there was an attending monk. And the procedure was, obviously the Swami is not seeing anything, hearing anything. He's obviously in coma. Uh, He's just sitting there like a vegetable, you know. But the procedure is to take the flower, put it in his hands, and then take it and put it at the feet of the Divine Mother. So on his behalf, sort of. And then you wheel him back to the, to the hospital bed. So they put the flower on his hand. the Swami, somehow the hands, you know, they, they sort of grasp the flower, maybe like a reflex, holding on to the flower. Uh, And after a long time, the attending monk tried to get the flower out of his hands and kept saying, trying to pull it out and saying, in case the Swami could hear, Swami, let go, let go. I will put it at the feet. I will do it. We'll put it at the feet of the Divine Mother. And to the stunned reaction of the people all around, this Swami who hadn't spoken in years, who had no reactions, smiled sweetly and said, uh, in Bengali, he said, when the time is right, I will give it to you. Wait. He spoke to, the, <laughs> to that attendant. They, they were stunned and they looked at him, but that's it. He never spoke again. Who knows what, these, what is going on there? But even more than this, um, the what Krishna says here, suppose he did not speak. Suppose he was in coma entirely. From his perspective, there's the, the spirit which was there, the cage is broken or about to be broken, the spirit has flown into the infinite. So it doesn't matter. Even if there are no such such spectacular demonstrations of you know, bodilessness or transcending the body. Transcending the body, I have seen so many times. But what really transcending the body means, I learned when a disciple of Swami Vijnananda. It is Swami Vigyananda's birthday yesterday, and I'm going to speak about him on Sunday. The disciple of Swami Vigyananda, which whom I saw, a very old monk in his late 80s and 90s. Imagine, he was paralyzed in both legs for many years. He was blind in both eyes. I think one hand was paralyzed probably after a stroke. And he was like this for years and years. Of course, the monks took care of him. But what I want to say is, I saw him closely in the hospital for several weeks and the most spirited man I've never seen at no time was I mean depression was just the opposite he was always encouraging everybody scolding us he couldn't see us Um, and you know so I, I remember one evening in the hospital we were sitting all around and as it happens, the monks, uh, uh, the evening is coming, we are sitting and gossiping about this and that in the ashram. And uh, the monks who are in the hospital taking care of the patients, they also drop in in that particular place where monks, cheda, the sick monks. Uh, so they talk, but it was, it was evening, time for arati, the evening worship. And this old Swami was lying in his bed, paralyzed, blind. I don't know how he knew it was evening. He shouted from that corner, Hey monks, shut up, time for meditation. Keep quiet. He was like that. Uh, If you go to him, he wouldn't give you an opportunity to ask about how he is, about his health. He never spoke about his health, his sufferings. Uh, He would immediately ask you to introduce yourself. Where are you from? Which ashram? And how are people in that ashram? How are the devotees doing? Please convey my best wishes, my prayers for their welfare. He would always be in the position of the giver of the advisor, of the inspirer, uh, I realize that is transcending the body. Completely being unaffected by the problems, problems of the body. That is, that is unforgettable. Anyway, here Krish, Sri Krishna says, uh, whatever the condition of the body, whatever the condition of your life, whoever you are or you were before enlightenment, it matters nothing. This person is... Uh, choicelessly, forever centred in God. Effortlessly. Now, the next verse. Next verse is of central importance. 32. Atma upam sarvatra samam pasyati yorjuna sukham va vayadiva dukkham sayogi paramo mataha So how does this person um, interact with others? What is the ethical standpoint of this enlightened one? He says, who by comparison with himself looks upon the pleasure and pain in all creatures as similar. That yogi or arjuna is considered the best. Who sees the pains and pleasures of others as the same as myself. It hurts when I do this to myself, it'll hurt them. This makes me happy, it'll make them happy. And what creates misery and pain in myself will create misery and pain in others, and therefore you act like this. This is called the golden rule. This is, I want to say a little bit about this. This is a high, one of the the highest ethical principle, common principle in all the religions of the world. In every religion of the world, this is found. This is called the golden rule. Here you find it in the Gita, but let me quote. This is a book about. Uh, the different principles which are common to all religions. It's called oneness, great principles shared by all religions. Um, but anyway, I want to quote from chapter one. It's called Golden Rule. The Golden Rule is expressed almost word for word in every religion. So fundamental is it to all religious thought that founders and enlightened teachers of every religion have commented on it directly.
1: Jesus referred to the golden rule as the law of the prophets. Uh, Muhammad
0: described it as the noblest expression of religion. Rabbi uh, Hillel stated in the Jewish Talmud that the golden rule is the whole of the Torah and the remainder is but commentary. Vyasa, the enlightened Hindu sage, called it the sum of all true righteousness. The Buddha, referred to it as the sum total of all righteousness. And Confucius deemed it the one principle upon which one's whole life may proceed. Let me uh, share with you this link. If you go to the United Nations headquarters here, the visitor center, you will find this. This very beautiful... um, There's the chat. I'm sending this link to everyone. This very beautiful... Mosaic. I've seen it. Some of you who have visited the UN headquarters have seen it. I, I think Peter might be here. He might speak to it. Um, Peter Dawkins. So it's very striking. You can't miss it. If you go to the UN headquarters, you'll see it's a very beautiful mosaic, and it it states the Golden Rule there: the "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you." And it's made by. I think it was it was commemorated and given to. United Nations by Nancy Reagan during the Reagan administration. Um, also, there's a lot of resources on the golden rule on the, on the net. So you find um, quotations from every religion in ancient Sanskrit tradition. We just saw the Gita um, is, is a Tamil tradition from the Kural, do not do unto others what you know has hurt yourself From the Tirukural. Why does one hurt others knowing what it is to be hurt? Very beautifully stated. In ancient Greece, Thales said, avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. Uh, Sextus the Pythagorean, he says, what you do not want to happen to you, do not do it yourself either. Uh, Plato says, may I be of a sound mind
1: and do to others as I would that they should do to me. Zoroastrianism. Um, it says that
0: nature alone is good which refrains from doing to another whatsoever is not good for
1: itself. Um, Judaism, Christianity we all saw, Islam and then in the gospel itself you find directly more than once. Matthew
0: 7.12. Do, what, do to others what you would want them to do to you. This is the meaning of the law of Moses and the teaching of the prophets. Luke
1: 6.31. As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. In Luke 10.25. A certain lawyer stood up and tested. and you know, He
0: asks uh, Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? This lawyer means who is an expert in uh, Jewish law. You shall love the God with your, uh, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You have answered correctly, do this, and you will live eternally. So, love your neighbor as
1: yourself. The golden rule. Um, Islam, Baha'i, Buddhism, Jainism. Jainism says, just as a sorrow or pain is not desirable to you, so it is to all which breathe, exist, live or have any sense of life. Sikhism. Precious like jewels. This is Guru Arjan Dev.
0: Precious like jewels are the minds of all. To hurt them is not at all good. If
1: you desire your beloved, beloved with the capital B, God, then hurt thou not anyone's heart. Taoism, in the Tao Te Ching also. Um, The sage has no interest of his own. This
0: is like a Jivan Mukta, but takes the interests of the people as his own. He's kind to the kind, he's also kind to the unkind for virtue is kind, is faithful to
1: the faithful, is also faithful to the unfaithful, for virtue is faithful. Then African religions,
0: not only that, uh, Greg Epstein, you know, recently there was a controversy, if you see, he is the humanist chaplain at Harvard University, and he was elected as the uh, head of all the chaplains in, at Harvard University. in you know, all the religions chaplains are there. So the head was a humanist chaplain, who is an atheist basically. <laughs> so there was a um, you know there were a lot of controversy. So how this is where we have come that uh, an atheist becomes the, uh, the head chaplain of all the chaplains. But he says, Greg Epstein, he says about the golden rule: do unto others is a concept that essentially no religion misses. But not a single one of these versions of the golden rule requires a god. So His point is that the golden rule to be true does not require a god. And that becomes the, the basis of ethics in Mahayana Buddhism. That to love all beings.
1: Not as they treat you, as you would have them treat you. Um... So the Buddhist,
0: mind and the Buddhist, they practice wonderful meditations. One of the most touching ones is that uh, we have all had endless lives, all of us. So it stands to reason that anyone you meet, you know, uh, at one time or the other, that person in some lifetime, that person would have been your mother, would have taken care of you, uh, and would have loved you endlessly. So all beings should be treated as your own mother, and you should work. To um, to serve and free all beings, and the greatest service, of course, is
1: liberation. So you should work for the liberation of all beings.
0: What about a beautiful sentiment! So, let
1: me see if there are any questions. So, this is called the uh, the golden rule. Ramya says, yes, we were taught this in school to do unto others as I would
0: that they should do to me. Correct. Bill says, Swamiji says, goodness is a transcendental value. It cannot be proved by materialist reasoning. It is true because uh, notice how goodness is proved here. Right now, the golden rule, why does it come here? In, In Vedanta, in the fullest Vedantic realization. On that, from that follows the golden rule that because it is the same divinity everywhere, it is you yourself everywhere. It is the oneness of all existence. And it's a divine oneness. Therefore, there's no limit to the goodness. It does not depend on how others treat you or what you do. You are dealing with your own self, whether they know it or not. And Swami Vivekananda says, this is the basis of ethics. It's a huge, huge question in ethics. Why should I be good? What is the foundation of goodness? I uh, At Harvard two years back, I had the opportunity to uh, attend a class on the philosophy of ethics conducted by none other than uh, Professor Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winning economist. He's also an like economist and also teacher of philosophy at Harvard University. And he was the master of Trinity College also at one time, very distinguished teacher. So he had a course on ethics and he was kind enough to permit me to attend. So there you see how, mostly from a Western perspective, how people have been struggling to found, find, give a foundation for ethics. The foundation means on what basis can you derive ethics? Why should I be good? And there are multiple approaches. So there is famously, economics mostly is based on a utilitarian approach, Mills, Bentham, uh, utilitarian approach. Because if you are good, then it increases happiness. Whatever increases happiness is good. And whatever you know reduces happiness is bad. Now, immediately, you will say that it's not a question of individual happiness. Because my individual happiness can increase at the expense of the unhappiness of so many people. So, in economics, it's applied in a sense of the whole society. And that's the basis of, for example, the taxation policies followed by uh, all um, societies that you tax the rich more and tax the poor at lower rates because, um, you know, $100 for the rich has very little impact, but the same $100 has a much greater impact on the lives of a poor person in terms of food, transportation, shelter, medical help and all. So it will increase. So the the amount of satisfaction lost by the rich person by giving up $100 in tax is uh, uh, offset by the amount of satisfaction gained by the poor person who's helped Uh, by that $100 in public spending. So there's basic economics, uh, you know, uh, uh, government, uh, financial policy, uh, which we all learned, whoever studied economics in school. Um, So that's based on utilitarianism. But there are problems with that. Mm -hmm. There are the famous um, trolley problem. The trolley problem, you know, that suppose there's a trolley coming on rails and there are, uh, uh, and you, you can see that at the end of the track, there are, uh, you know, 10 people standing. And you are in the position where there's a lever. If you pull the lever, the trolley will be diverted. It is out of control. It will be diverted to the next track. But that at the end of that track, five people are standing. Now, what will you do? If you pull the lever, then the trolley will not go and kill the 10 people, but you go and kill the five people. Now utilitarian uh, ethics says that you should pull the lever and let them let it go and kill the five people. But it's tricky, is it? Uh, suppose your personal ethics is that you should not directly hurt or kill anybody. But if you pull the lever, you're actually you're actually killing five people. If you don't pull the lever, you might be responsible but you did not actually, I'm just giving a, a counterfactual argument and a kind of argument that uh, you did not actually kill anybody because you did not in- interfere in the process. But then, um, so this is a typical problem that is set up in any uh, ethics class. The theory always you see the struggle is what is the foundation of ethics? On what basis will you decide? Um, what would be the answer? The, professor Ramathasian put this question in, in the ethics class there, but because it's Harvard, you get a different answer. Neither this, nor that. Because one, one student said that neither. So, the professor asked, how? What do you mean neither? There are only two choices. Either you pull the lever or you do not pull the lever. And the student gave a very beautiful answer. He said, both are nasty options. If we are deciding public policy, we should think out of the box for looking for a, a better um, solution for everybody. There is bound to be. I mean, liver, this situation is an artificial situation. But in public policy, it's so complex in this world, you have to think what is, um, you know, like, instead of one nasty solution, another nasty solution, what is a good solution for everybody? Anyway, um, this long story. Now, there is deontological ethics, there is utilitarian ethics, there is teleological ethics, so many, many ways. You know, one might be deontological means it's a big word, just means duty. My religious book has told me, thou shalt not kill. Therefore, therefore, I will not take part in anything, pulling the lever this way, that way, nothing. So, that, but, but how do you know that's right? And what's the problem with that kind of approach? The problem with that kind of approach is my religious book has told me. Another person's religious book may not have told that person that. And this may not be acceptable to suppose somebody is an atheist and does not believe in any religion whatsoever or believes in a different religion. So this cannot be the foundation for ethics for everybody. So we go on and until uh, uh, Swami Vivekananda, he says that Vedanta, provides a basis for ethics and then he brings in this, that this from the experience of oneness. Not you might say, then you have to experience oneness, not necessarily. From this understanding that we are one reality, on that you can base ethics. All ethics, he says, actually, all ethics can be based on the oneness of existence. It is, see, naturally, I don't hurt myself, nobody um, doubts that, I will not hurt, hurt myself. But what do I do with others, that's the whole question of ethics. Now, if I can in some way understand the others as myself, so the same care that I take for myself, I will take for others. That is where the golden rule comes from. But
1: understanding others as myself requires advaita vedanta. So that is one solution of ethics. Um, Then let me see. Shanli says, if someone ignores you, would you ignore him also? Someone is nice to you, would you
0: be nice towards him? It depends on the situation. First of all, your attitude should be one of uh, empathy, respect and kindness towards everybody. Now, in a particular situation, whether you will ignore somebody or pay attention, you see, sometimes ignoring can be hurtful. Sometimes paying attention can be intrusive. Am I paying attention to that person because that person requires attention or because I am bored and restless? (laughs) I'm I'm nosy. That's why I'm paying attention. And I'm saying it is because of the golden rule in the Gita and all religions and the United Nations, which which forces me to interfere in your business.
1: No, it doesn't. (laughs) But the attitude can be uh, one of sympathy and respect. Is it better to live with self-respect? Always. Why will you not have self-respect?
0: Imagine what your self is. It is one with God. It is divinity itself. Of course, you will have respect for yourself. Abhijit says regarding Sri Shankaracharya's argument against subjective idealism, the subject of is the subject subjective idealism in dispute here, or is it something more? Uh, I don't know what
1: you're asking, Abhijit. Are you asking what are the arguments in favor and against? Abhijit is there? No? Yeah, I mean, these things are found in the philosophy textbooks. I remember
0: um, one of the assignments I had to do was actually this. We had uh, a course at Harvard taught by Professor Parimal Patil on classical Indian Buddhism. And uh, one of the assignments that I took up was uh, the subjective idealism of Dharmakirti. It is a text, ancient text, about 1600 years old, I think, um, which is called Alambana Pariksha, an examination of the support, that there is an external support for our perceptions. And When you're seeing things, there is something which makes us see these things. That means there is something outside our mind. And Dharmakirti, the great Buddhist master, attacks this. He says, there is no external reality. It's all in your mind. He wants to show this. And he gives a series of arguments. Some positive, um, some negative. Negative means he will challenge you. You say these things exist outside. He he challenges both Buddhist realists and also by implication Hindu realists. Realist means external world exists. Often like the common sense way way we, way we, we think about it. There is an external world. So, he challenges those who think there is an external world. For example, one of his arguments is, so there is an external world. These computers, books, tables, chairs, they all exist outside the mind. They are not thoughts. They are actual things. Yes. What are they made of? They are made of atoms. At that time, atomic theory was developed. The Vaisheshikas, they even coined the term atom, Anu. So, they are made of atoms. What are atoms? They are the smallest possible particle. They are the particle which cannot be divided, uh, further subdivided. So They didn't discover this through experimentation, obviously, but just by thinking logically. If things are made of particles and they can be divided, they can be further subdivided, you must come to an end at some point. Um, So the particle which cannot be divided any further. So this dimensionless particle is an atom, but then obviously the logical difficulties. If that atom does not have dimensions, then it will be so tiny, it will have no extension, no breadth, height, width, anything. So if you put two atoms together, which are dimensionless, you will still get a dimensionless point. No matter how many atoms you put together, you will still get an infinitesimally small point. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the same problem which we had with geometry. A point is a this geometrical entity which has no length, no breadth. But if you have if that, and then so many number of points makes a straight line, that's that's logically not possible. If you remember our um, geometry, which we learned in school. So, he attacks the concept of atoms, that if this is your concept of atoms, no matter how many atoms you put together, you will not be able to make a table or a chair. They are the, the concept of atoms and molecules. He says that it's not possible. So, he demolishes your idea of indivisible particles making external entities. So, that's a that's one kind of argument. which shows that your idea of making externally existing object is not valid. Then he shows why his idea is better, that all objects are in your mind. He says, blue and the the experience of blue, the cognition of blue and the cognition of blue are indistinguishable. What What he means by that is, notice all our experiences and all that's all we have in life, just experiences. The experience the object of experience and the experience are the same thing. Think about anything that you are seeing here right now. You are seeing people, computers, but they are all in your experience. All the objects are in your experience. Have you ever had an experience of an object outside your experience? The moment you have an experience of an object outside your experience becomes a part of your experience. It's, it's logically impossible to experience anything outside experience. So, everything that you can have experienced till now and you can possibly experience ever in future has to be part of your cognition, otherwise, you can't experience it. And therefore, there is no grounds for thinking there is anything outside cognition, outside the mind, outside experience, and external to the world. So, like this, he argues. And Shankara hits back hard and demolishes all of this. The assignment we had to do was not with Shankara, it was by the great. Um, that I chose to do was a great Purvam Imamsa philosopher, Kumari Bhatta, who was a elder contemporary of Shankara Shankaracharya. He's a realist. The world, external world exists. and This is madness to think that there's no external world. It's all a dream. And so he gives uh, multiple arguments. For example, this subjective idealism does not work. For example, why not? He says, Kumari Bhatta. now he's attacking Dharmakirti. Kumari Bhatta lived about a couple of hundred years or 300 years after Dharmakirti. Uh, he has this essay called Niralambavada, Niralamba an examination of the theory that there is no external support, no external entity. So his arguments are like this So there's nothing external, it's all internal in your mind. Yes. Then where did this distinction between internal and external come? Why at all is this distinction there
1: in our lives between the internal and external? Another uh, question. How would you distinguish truth from falsehood?
0: I imagine, um, I I, I eat a cookie and I imagine eating uh, two more cookies. So have I eaten three cookies or one cookie? You would say you ate one cookie, Swami, and the other two you imagine. But according to you, oh Buddhist, mind-only philosopher, the cookie which I ate was also in my mind. And the cookies I imagined in the mind but also in my mind. What is the distinction between imagination and reality in your system? Like this. So many attacks. It's sort of like a forensic thing. <laughs> Tremendous attack Kumarila mounts on and tears it apart. Um,
1: the mind-only arguments of Dharmakiti. Yeah. Mm. What else? And Shankaracharya follows with multiple more arguments against
0: uh, the mind-only philosophers. Nitin says, since nothing is ever experienced outside of mind, what is the real need for maya to go through the trouble of projecting things outside and then perceiving them through minds? It seems sufficient and more sensible to simply project minds and things within those minds. Does Shankaracharya support Srishti Drishti Vada only? Because it's easier to explain to people or is there irrefutable Shruti support for it? There is no irrefutable sh- shruti support for srishti rishti Vada, nor for drishti srishti Vada. These, Srishti-rishti means the world has been created and we are experiencing it, a common sense approach, the way we think about it. Drishti-srishti means the whole thing is in your mind. There's nothing outside, just like uh, the Buddhists were saying. Now, from an Advaita perspective, which one is true? Is there a world outside our minds or is it all in our minds? From an Advaita perspective, none of these is true. From an Advaita perspective, there is no external world. There are no minds also. There is only consciousness. And the whole thing is a play in consciousness. So, adopting one or the other, Shankaracharya, it's just a a matter of taste and convenience. Because ultimately, Shankaracharya does not want to say there is an external world. No. Ultimately, he wants to say Brahman alone exists. But, But then why doesn't he take the Buddhist way out? He doesn't think that will lead him to that ultimate reality. So he, he wants to protect this method. And the, the method basically is the skillful master will start where the students are. We really, really feel there's an external world. And so if the master wants to help us and show that there's, there's only one absolute reality, the master has to start at our level. So yeah yeah, there is a world and here is the body. But you feel you are a person in the body. So that person is the mind. And then beyond the mind, he would try to take us to consciousness itself and then show us that all that we thought were external are only appearances in consciousness. That's, uh, that works. If you start by saying everything is in your mind, all this is a dream, that's not the way we normally uh, you know think, behave or believe. It might be nice as a thought experiment, like a movie, Matrix movie, but we will not act on it. Uh, we cannot build our spiritual life easily. Not all of us. There are some. Okay, who, who will, which method will, uh, will suit whom? So the sadhus in Uttarakhand are very clear about this in the Himalayas. The various grades of methods, srishti drishti vada. that's a common approach for everybody. Why? Because everybody believes like that. We really believe there's a distinction between waking and dreaming. We really believe there's a world out there. We really believe there's this body. If you don't believe that, if you try to force yourself into this mind-only kind of thinking, I've seen people go into depression. People lose all kind of interest in the world outside. Those who really try to do that, they lose motivation and drive. They start misbehaving with others because they, the others don't exist, right? They're all in your mind. <laughs> so if that led to enlightenment, there would be nothing like it. It doesn't lead to enlightenment. That leads to tamaguna. A person becomes tamasic. So it doesn't help. But not that that path is wrong, but that path is difficult. It's a little more advanced. Who will whom will it suit? Drishti Shrishti Vata that you can reject the world as a dream, dream as a dream, waking also a dream. Gaudapada does that actually. For Gaudapada, it's Drishti Shrishti Vata, the
1: world is like a dream. And who can do that? The difference is in Vairagya, dispassion. It's a very monastic thing, and among monks also, the higher grade of Vairagya,
0: the dispassion for the world desirelessness, a peaceful, unpolluted mind, they can, for such a mind, the world can actually practically seem dreamlike. It happens also. You're sitting high in the Himalayan cave. I've experienced it myself. Very soon, the world seems to be dreamlike. You can dismiss it. But just because you're sitting 10,000 feet up and from there, the plains of India are covered in clouds, basically, so, or smog. Uh, so, you can't see the complexities of light from there. Anyway, Even higher than that, Ajatavada, Godapada. Why even in your mind? There's nothing in your mind. It's like deep sleep. (laughs) There's no world at all. Only Brahman is. But that is suitable only for the highest grade. Those who have extraordinary dispassion for even their own bodies and minds. For them, it it works directly. Why have these sophisticated ways or very subtle ways if they are not useful? They are useful for higher grades of uh, seekers. Their use is they are faster and more direct. They lead to the realization sharply, straight away, because they're they're very much closer than actually
1: believing in an external world. Okay. So, this last one, let me take this. There are more
0: messages coming in. (laughs) Hold on to that. Let me take a couple. Gita Dev says, I need a small clarification every time I'm seeing anything in this world or more generally sensing other objects or beings in this world. I'm constantly being reminded of being aware and being nothing but pure awareness itself and that all other objects are also nothing but pure awareness ultimately, since they appear only in my awareness and not anywhere else. Is that correct? If this is the case, then how do I keep this in the forefront of my mind while interacting with the world? How to distinguish between the Vavaharika satta from the Paramatika Does Nididhyasana help? Yeah. If everything is reminding of you, the pure awareness, then everything becomes meditation. In Vedanta we say, Yatra Yatra Mano Yati Tatra Whatever the mind, wherever the mind goes, wherever the mind goes means whatever the mind thinks about, that itself will lead to Samadhi. Every thought, Every experience becomes samadhi then. The Keno Upanishad says, Pratibodha Viditam Matam Amritattvam Hivindate. When you realize Brahman in every experience, that means many experiences are coming walking, talking, eating. Uh, These are all experiences. Thousands of experiences are coming throughout the day. And in each of these experiences, Brahman is revealed. Why should it not be so? Isn't the water revealed in each wave? 10,000 waves. Each wave reveals water pots of clay. Each uh, pot reveals uh, the clay. Each ornament reveals the gold. Does it not? Naturally, because it is gold. Every experience
1: is nothing other than pure consciousness. So that itself is a meditation, but it's a pretty high meditation. Rick has given a, a oneness, principles of
0: uh, religions. Yes, but don't rush to buy it because I bought it but i found it's just basically a collection of uh, quotations from different religions
1: not bad but but all right and then ubiquity of the golden rule must surely indicate a common origin is the common
0: origin advaita non-duality it it might be the intuition of non-duality which i believe is there in every genuine spiritual tradition of the world including the indigenous, the first people's traditions. Aldous actually mentions that. He says in his book, Perennial Philosophy, the idea that there's one non-dual reality, the ultimate reality of the universe is this oneness. We think it's a sophisticated development. You know, at the end of the Upanishads, you find it's the highest philosophy of Advaita. But he says, I believe it's a timeless realization. Even primitive man, um, prehistoric man must have had it. They may, may not have your language, your poetry, your philosophy, uh, your logic, but that intuition they had of the one reality behind this multiplicity. Rick says to me, the best argument against subjective idealism is intersubjective agreement. Doesn't work because, uh, he, uh, let me finish. If each person's mind fabricates its own world, there would be as many radically different worlds as there are people and life would be utter chaos. No, it doesn't work because uh, Gaudapada considers this. He says in the Mandukya Karika, Consider your dreams again. This is the best example. In your dreams, there are so many subjects. You say, no, but there's only me. That's, there's only you after you wake up. But in your dreams, you did meet people. You were going, you're sharing a cup of coffee with your friend or friends. And you felt there were your friends. And all of your friends saw the cup of coffee. They agreed on their intersubjective agree- agreement. You, didn't, you don't experience this in your dreams that, um, you know, if you tell your friend, that um, here is a cup of coffee, have, have a sip. And your friend says, no, it's in your mind. I can't see it. <laughs> he doesn't say it. He sees it. It's because the same mind is projecting both you and your friend and the cup of coffee. So that's why intersubjective agreement is possible. You can still have intersubjective
1: agreement and yet snap out of it and wake up and say, oh, it was all in my mind. But even in uh, Gordhapar's dream example, all
0: the dream friends see the same world. That's true. That's why they have intersubjective agreement and yet it's a dream. So you see, there are are not multiple subjects there. There's only one subject and they projected so many things. So it was all in the mind, yet it seemed to be many subjects and they all agreed that that is a common. So intersubjective agreement is not an argument for an external world. A common public external world. The argument is because we perceive this external world, all of us, we seem to agree. Therefore, it must be there. But it could be a dream. You could just wake up and see, oh, I, didn't, I missed the Vedanta class. I was dreaming. Uh, so, and we, in the dream, we had intersubjective experience. Uh, agreement, intersubjective agreement. Siddharth says, okay, I'll stop with this. Siddharth says, sometimes we fail to accept negative facts and delude ourselves that it did not happen. Doing this is helpful in keeping one happy One accepts everything in the mind. The task becomes easier. Something bad never really happened. Okay. This is an important point, actually. What Siddhartha said. One sadhu in Uttarakhand said this. Quite apart from all the philosophy we are discussing. One good way of facing problems in life. Subtle way, but a powerful way. Notice that every problem that you have faced, even every annoying person you have faced, and the 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 bad treatment that you have received by that person, the nasty words somebody has said to you, or even an ache or a pain which you have suffered, all of that had to come in your mind and appear as thoughts
1: and perceptions in your mind for you to experience it. Nobody can deny this. Now, whether that
0: person exists outside or not, whether that person, what that person actually said outside your mind, whatever it is, What actually impacted you? What actually hurt you? What actually disturbed you and insulted you
1: was entirely in your mind. Can you understand this? It's a simple fact. It's just so. But
0: that person is there. He did insult me. Who knows? But that insult, if you are a realist, you will say there is a person outside who said nasty things, insulting things. Uh, But the fact is, even if that person exists, even if that person did all those bad things, you have no direct experience of it. Whatever you experience has been presented by the mind. So Siddharth is pointing out something very subtly, very important. It's your, your mind which creates nice people and lovable people and hateful people and miserable experiences and nice experiences. Whatever that is created, the entire magic panorama, is, it's a The Buddhists say it's a magic display of your mind and like a cosmic illusion generated by your mind all the time.
1: And that helps to give you some peace of mind. Okay. Let's just end here. Ajata Vada, there is, Nitin says, there's no process of creation,
0: preservation, dissolution. Brahman still shines forth and appears as the world itself by its very nature. Isn't it so that the world is the laplapahat of Brahman, the shining fort, like a flame shining? If so, can't the shining fort be explained as drishti Shishti while still un- upholding Ajata? All right, let me put it this way. One sadhu put it very nicely. Uh, he said, these three views, these are three approaches to the same Advaita Vedanta by Let me, the English translations. Creation, experienced, srishti, drishti. Experienced creation, drishti, srishti. Ajata, the, the unborn universe. birthless. These three, each more radical and more sophisticated than the other. These are methodologies of pathways. They will all lead you to the same realization. By taking the common highway which everybody takes, you will not get a lower grade of Brahman. And by following Gaurapada, Ajatavada, you don't get a Brahman plus plus. You know, you don't get a, you're on a, uh, no. How do you understand the difference between these three paths? One Swami put it so beautifully, I'll leave you with this idea. Fantastic idea, he said. He said, with the waking world paradigm, if you try to understand Advaita Vedanta, it is Srishti Drishti. With the dream world paradigm, if you try to understand Advaita Vedanta, it is Drishti Srishti. With the deep sleep paradigm, if you try
1: to understand Advaita Vedanta, it is Ajatavad. This is the secret. It's a profound secret. All right. Om Shanti
0: Shanti Shanti Harihi Om Tatsat Shri Rama Krishna